The guards had fled. For days, word had circulated throughout the Dachau concentration camp of an imminent invasion by the Allies. Of course, the prisoners' Nazi overseers had done everything they could to quell the rumors, so as to keep business going as usual. But now they were gone, and the prisoners' suspicions deepened. A short while later, tanks appeared at the camp's gates, large, olive-green machines with white stars painted on their sides, and all the prisoners could do was stare in horror as the hulking vehicles aimed their guns toward them. But the tanks soon cut their engines. Their hatches opening, the prisoners were startled to see Japanese soldiers emerging. A wave of panic coursed through the camp. One Axis power had been replaced with another. Were they there to finish what the Nazis had started? But these soldiers didn't speak Japanese, but English, in the American vernacular. With relief and tears in their eyes, the prisoners looked to these troops with hope and optimism, the first such feelings they'd felt since they'd been brought to the camp. Such was the scene on April 29, 1945, when a unit comprised entirely of Japanese-American soldiers arrived at the gates of the Dachau concentration camp in the German town of the same name. What these troops saw was unlike anything they'd seen up to that point in their time at war. Railroad cars loaded with dead and decaying bodies, the stench of which hung over everything. Emaciated prisoners whose hollow eyes looked out at them from behind barbed wire fences, and a path of destruction left behind by the Nazis. This unit, known as the 442nd, would go on to become the most decorated unit in the entire United States Army by the end of World War II, but their journey to such a distinction was marred by distrust, questions of loyalty, and the answer to the ultimate question, what makes a true American? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to a special Memorial Day commemorative edition of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us, and today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Following the end of the Great War, World War I, then-President Woodrow Wilson famously declared that the conflict would be, quote, the war to end all wars, unquote. So violent, bloody, and horrifying was the skirmish that he was certain no nation would lift arms ever again. But 15 years later, such sentiments seemed to have been forgotten. In 1933, Adolf Hitler came to power over Germany and quickly enacted the policy of Lebensraum, or living space, the idea that his Third Reich needed to expand its borders by conquering other countries and territories within its reach. In the Far East, Japan began asserting its dominance over the Asian mainland, committing unspeakable acts of violence against China and Korea before hungrily eyeing Southeast Asia and the Pacific as its next targets. In other words, the stage was set for yet another global conflict, but the proverbial fuse that lit the equally proverbial powder keg took place on September 6, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. This act soon turned the Great War into World War I, with this conflict soon being referred to as World War II. Much as it had at the beginning of World War I, the United States maintained an isolationist stance, asserting that it wouldn't get involved in foreign affairs. As you could imagine, the atrocities being carried out in both Eastern Europe and East Asia caused some in the American public to find faults in this policy. But then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt remained firm in his stance. That is, until December 7, 1941, when the war was brought directly onto American soil. It began like any other Sunday for the residents of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, decidedly sleepy and more or less business as usual. As Christmas was coming in just a few weeks, some families were putting up lights and other decorations. At the American naval base, the sailors were just rising to greet the new day. But at about 5 minutes to 8 a.m., the roar of engines in the sky caused the citizens to look up, whereupon they were greeted by an intimidating sight. Green and black warplanes, each of which was emblazoned with a bright red circle, darkened the skies over the city. They were instantly recognizable as belonging to the Imperial Japanese Army Air Service, and it was much to the public's horror when they began bombarding the naval base with maximum firepower. 
The entire attack only took about an hour and 15 minutes, after which time some 2,400 people, including 68 civilians, were killed. The following day, President Roosevelt addressed the nation in a now-famous radio address, not only declaring war on Japan, but also asserting the United States' entry into the greater conflict that will become known as World War II. In light of the attack on Pearl Harbor, suspicion soon fell on the nation's Japanese population. Despite having been in America since at least the late 19th century, it was believed at the time that those who immigrated to the United States and their descendants would somehow be more sympathetic to the Japanese cause than that of their adopted country. They were soon deemed a threat to national security, and therefore couldn't be trusted. Just two months after the attack, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 into effect, calling for the relocation of Japanese Americans from their communities along the West Coast into relocation, or internment camps, deep within the nation's interior. Despite such protective measures, quote-unquote, however, it's important to note that there was never any instance of Japanese-American dissent or plots against the United States throughout the duration of the war. In short, the executive order was, and remains, a dark stain on the annals of American history. In Hawaii, however, internment camps were not a common solution to the quote-unquote problem of Japanese-American loyalty. Most families there had been there since the islands were their own sovereign state that is, from the mid-19th century onward, while Japanese-owned businesses were shuttered in light of the Pearl Harbor attack, what was enacted instead was government-imposed martial law in which no persons of Japanese descent were allowed out after dark. In the military, all soldiers of Japanese ancestry were stripped of their service, but these Japanese Hawaiians were quick to prove their loyalty, forming the Varsity Victory Volunteers after being discharged from both the United States Army and the Hawaii Territorial Guard, the latter of which was a sort of precursor to the National Guard, as Hawaii was a U.S. territory at the time. As General Delos C. Emmons, the military governor of Hawaii after the attack on Pearl Harbor, still held doubts of these citizens' loyalty, he petitioned the War Department that these discharged troops be reorganized into the Hawaiian Provisional Battalion and sent to the mainland for training. Thus, the 298th and 299th Regiments landed at Oakland, California on June 10, 1942, and two days later were sent to Camp McCoy in Wisconsin, where they were designated the 100th Infantry Battalion. While not a part of what would become the 442nd, it was the loyal actions of these Japanese Americans in the 100th that would inspire the idea. By 1943, the conflict had grown particularly nasty. With much of East Asia under their control, Japan began eyeing the islands in the Pacific Ocean as strategic locations upon which they could set up their naval and aerial bases of operations. In Europe, the Nazi war machine continued to sweep across the continent like a runaway steamroller, flattening everything in its path in its quest for domination and conquest. The United States government realized that it needed as many able-bodied men as it could get to fight, and, in light of the 100th Infantry Battalion, began toying with the idea of allowing those Japanese Americans who were interned to enlist. Of course, sending them to the Pacific to fight the Japanese was out of the question. Instead, they would be deployed to war-torn Europe in an attempt at halting the Nazi war machine in its tracks. On January 22, 1943, an order was sent out from the War Department and sent directly to the internment camps deep within the nation's interior. The objective was to establish a Japanese-American combat team, in which, quote, all cater of men must be American citizens of Japanese ancestry who have resided in the United States since birth. Unquote. The commanding officers, on the other hand, were to be white American citizens. Regardless, several Nisei, that is, second-generation Japanese Americans, leapt at the opportunity, eager to prove their loyalty to their home country, to prove that they were, in fact, as American as anyone else. All prospective candidates were provided with a questionnaire, in which they'd answer queries regarding their families and themselves. Of these, however, perhaps the most famous, or infamous, questions were numbers 27 and 28, which went as follows. 
Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty, wherever ordered? Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attacks by foreign or domestic forces and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any other foreign government, power, or organization? Not surprisingly, some 25% of eligible males either checked no or left them blank in protest of their unfair treatment and unreasonable relocation. In hindsight, who could blame them? Much of this 25% resented the implication that they ever had ties or allegiances to their parents' country of birth slash origin. Those who answered in these manners were imprisoned for dodging the draft. As for the other 75%, they happily and proudly checked yes. By the time of the regiment's official formation on February 1st, 1943, some 14,000 had enlisted, with 10,000 alone volunteering from the territory of Hawaii, while the rest came from the West Coast. From there, the new recruits were shipped off to Camp Shelby in Mississippi to train. By early 1944, they were ready for battle. The aforementioned 100th Infantry Battalion had been deployed first, where they fought against Nazi forces in the heavily wooded areas of central and northern Italy. By the time the 442nd had made landfall at Anzio on May 28, 1944, the 100th had already incurred heavy losses, so many in fact that it was given the unofficial nickname of the Purple Heart Battalion for the bravery and courage they demonstrated in battle. The two were soon consolidated into a single unit, though the 100th maintained its separate title for its distinguished fighting record, and on June 26, that same year, went into battle together for the first time at the village of Belvedere in Suvereto, Tuscany. No sooner had they arrived at a fierce exchange in Sioux. The 2nd and 3rd battalions were the first to engage the enemy, with F Company enduring the worst of it. All the while, the 100th A, B, and C companies used a covered route to capture the high ground just northeast of Belvedere. A company blocked the village's exit while C Company blocked its entrance, trapping the Nazi forces within it. However, the 442nd 2nd Battalion, which was already inside the village, was under heavy fire from the enemy, but B Company launched a surprise attack on their exposed eastern flank, forcing them to flee, but not before running right into A and C Company's traps. From there, the 442nd proceeded north, keeping the Nazis at bay, but engaging in countless skirmishes along the way. By July 1st, after only a few days of respite, they took Chechina from enemy hands and began heading towards the Arno River. The following day, however, proved to be quite difficult, as they'd reached Hill 140, the main line of Nazi resistance. On that first day alone, the 5th Battalion was pummeled with heavy artillery fire, but victoriously fought back in an attempt at securing the hill. By the end of the battle, some 1,100 Nazi soldiers had been killed, with an additional 331 captured. As it turned out, only one German battalion had been defending the hill the whole time. On the opposite side of the fight, an entire machine gun squad of the 442nd's L Company had been wiped out by German artillery, as well as G Company of the 2nd Battalion. Of the two, all who was left standing was the latter's commander, who, with the exception of obviously being a bit rattled, was physically unharmed. Miraculously, five days later, on July 7th, Hill 140 came under American control, thanks to the 442nd's 34th Division. That same day, they proceeded towards the small town of Castellina Maritima, a place 22 miles, or 35 kilometers, southeast of the city of Pisa, the latter of which is perhaps most famous for its leaning tower. The fighting there began with an assault by the 100th, who secured the high ground along the town's northwestern edge. 2nd Platoon C Company soon moved into position, but was met with heavy German resistance. Luckily, however, the Nisei soldiers were able to fend them off. B Company, meanwhile, headed into the northern side of Castellina, where they too were greeted by artillery fire but they soon retaliated, driving Nazi forces out by early evening. There they dug in and waited for relief after spending virtually the entire day securing the town. 
Over the ensuing three weeks, the 442nd pressed on towards the French border, meeting enemy resistance every step of the way. By July 25th, the Rome Arno campaign, as the first leg of their combat had been called, was complete, though the men were exhausted and had incurred several losses. Around 1,272 men had either been killed, injured, or declared missing. From July 25th until August 15th, 1944, they rested, after which time they were joined by the anti-tank company and prepared for the invasion of France. No sooner had they arrived in France were they briefed on an important mission with which they would now be tasked. Their orders were to rescue the 1st Battalion of the U.S. Army's 141st Infantry, which was completely surrounded by the enemy two miles east of the village of Bifontaine in the northeastern part of the country behind enemy lines. On October 26th, the battalions A, B, and C companies, along with a platoon from Company D, some 275 men in total, were separated from the rest of their ranks due to a heavy German attack. Stranded until help could arrive, General John E. Dahlquist called upon the 442nd to move in and retrieve the so-named Lost Battalion from behind enemy lines. Thus, with the backing of the 133rd and 522nd Field Artillery Units, the 442nd valiantly began crossing the treacherous Vosges Mountains, which formed the border between eastern France and western Germany. They made little headway at first, as this particular stretch of the German border was patrolled by General Wilhelm Richter's infantry and artillery, both of which fought back viciously. Over the ensuing few days, the 442nd saw the heaviest fighting it would see in the war, as their advance came to a standstill due to a combination of Nazi attacks and the natural elements. The terrain was particularly rugged to begin with, but combined with thick fog and darker-than-dark nights, any forward movement proved near impossible. On more than one occasion, the men had to form a human chain so as to know where to go. In addition, inclement weather such as rain and snow, as well as near-freezing temperatures quite literally put a damper on their advance. The deeper the 442nd penetrated into this mountainous territory, the more hesitant they became, until it was clear that they'd come too far to retreat. Finally, they came upon the final line of German defenses, and, in true heroic fashion, charged into attack in wave after wave. While several of the Nisei died in the skirmish, their strategy overwhelmed the enemy forces, many of whom fled in the disarray. On the afternoon of October 30th, after five days of intense fighting, the 442nd's 3rd Battalion managed to break through enemy lines and successfully reached the 141st. Thus, the lost battalion was saved, albeit at the cost of 800 of the Nisei troops. In fact, when General Dahlquist personally organized an honor and award ceremony for the 442nd on November 12th that same year, only 18 soldiers from K Company and 8 of I Company showed up. When the general inquired as to the meager turnout, Colonel Virgil R. Miller, the 442nd's regimental commander, responded with a simple, That's all that's left, sir. Following the exhaustive and exhausting campaign in the Vosges Mountains, the 442nd was sent to the Maritime Alps, that is, the southernmost part of the famed mountain chain, and the French Riviera, where they'd encounter little to no action over the course of the next four months. It was a period of relative rest and relaxation for the regiment that had seen some of the worst and most intense fighting in the entire war. It was later dubbed the Champagne Campaign by the Nisei themselves, given the abundant wine, women, and song available to them at the time. But it wasn't all fun and games, of course. Injuries were still sustained by encounters with enemy landmines, and the occasional spy was captured. Perhaps the most exciting part of the Champagne campaign was the capture of a German midget submarine just off the coast. With its driver apprehended by the Nisei, both he and the vessel were handed over to the U.S. Navy. On March 23, 1945, the Champagne campaign came to an end, and some of the Nisei soldiers were called back to Italy, where they would return to the Gothic line, that is, the German defensive line, in the far north of that country. 
Others were sent to the Rhone Valley in eastern France, where they'd aid the U.S. Army's 63rd Division in their advance into Germany in an attempt at breaking through the defensive Siegfried Line. This particular battalion of the 442nd, known as the 522nd Field Artillery Battalion, was the only Nice unit to fight in Germany proper, and ultimately supported some two dozen army units along the enemy front, covering a total of 1,100 miles, 1,800 kilometers, and accomplishing each of their 52 assignments. It was this battalion that would liberate the Dachau concentration camp, as described in the opening of this episode. On April 29, 1945, 522nd scouts spotted an adjacent camp to Dachau just outside the small town of Lagerlechfeld. This satellite camp, known as Kaufering vor Hulach, was one of 170 similar camps and itself contained some 3,000 prisoners. The Nisei of the 522nd were among the first Allied troops to release prisoners from this and the adjoining camps. One soldier, Tom Kono, described the scene as follows. We finally opened the Dachau camp. Those people were so afraid of us, you could see the fear in their face, but eventually they realized we were there to liberate and help them. Minoru Tsubota, another of the 522nd present that day, recalled the prisoners in vivid detail. They were all just skin and bones, sunken eyes. I think they were more dead than alive because they hadn't eaten so much. Outside of the camps there were a lot of railroad cars that had bodies in them. I had the opportunity to go into the camp, but you could smell the stench. The people were dead and piled up in the buildings, and it was just unbelievable that the Nazis could do that to the Jewish people. As they were ordered not to give food to the prisoners, as it would overwhelm their severely starved digestive systems and kill them, all the Nisei soldiers could do was provide them clothing and warmth. Those troops who returned later said that they'd never forget what they saw that day, and given those testimonials, I'd imagine it'd be difficult not to. Meanwhile, the Nisei of the 100th were tasked with breaking through the Gothic line in northern Italy. As per General Mark W. Clark's plan, the 100th would mount a surprise attack on the German defense's left flank, which would act as a diversion, allowing the U.S. 5th and 8th armies to cross the Senio River that cut through the Apennine Mountains, thus attacking both the enemy's left and right flanks. The ten summits where the fighting would take place were each given code names: Georgia, Florida, Ohio 1, Ohio 2, Ohio 3, Monte Cerreta, Monte Folgorito, Monte Belvedere, Monte Carchio, and Monte Altissimo. The 100th's objective was Georgia, while the 442nd's 3rd Battalion was Monte Folgorito. They mobilized under cover of darkness, as the Germans had a clear vantage point from their place atop the mountains. The following day, the Nisei soldiers waited. It wasn't until before dawn on April 5, 1945, that they were ready to strike. Just a half hour after their attack, they'd successfully taken both Georgia and Monte Folgorito, breaking through the Gothic line and forcing the enemy to retreat. Over the course of the following month, the 442nd led several successful campaigns against the Germans in Italy. One by one, they pushed the enemy back, until there was nothing the German adversaries could do but surrender. On May 2, 1945, the war in Italy came to an end, with hundreds then thousands of German troops offering themselves up as prisoners to the 442nd. Six days later, Allied victory was declared in Europe. In the days after VE Day, as it came to be called, troops of the 442nd remained in Germany and other parts of Europe to ensure that fleeing Nazi soldiers and officers couldn't escape. The 522nd, for example, stationed not far from where they'd liberated the Dachau concentration camp, set up roadblocks and sentry posts to capture any stray Nazis who were attempting to flee. Upon their return home, the various divisions of the 442nd were presented with a great many awards and distinctions for their service. In the first two years after the war alone, they received a total of 18,143 awards, including 21 medals of honor, 8 presidential unit citations from then-president Harry S. Truman, 52 distinguished service crosses, 4,000 bronze stars, and several other honors. 
To this day, they are the most decorated unit of its size and length of service in the entire history of American warfare. From the adversity they faced at home, they seized the opportunity to prove not just their worth as soldiers, but that they were true Americans in every sense of the word. The grave injustice of Japanese-American internment cannot be undone, but the continued education of their valiant efforts to protect our freedoms is the best way in which we can honor them. This Memorial Day, as we light up the grills and perhaps enjoy a barbecue with our families, let's take a moment to reflect upon the sacrifices they made to secure the democratic values we Americans hold so dear to our hearts. Thanks for listening, and a very blessed Memorial Day to all my fellow Americans, wherever you may be. As we fire up the grills and celebrate with our families, let's take a moment to reflect upon the Nisei soldiers who died during World War II, as well as any and all servicemen in all wars who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms and security. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to support me to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget and monetary situation. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next week for another exciting and enthralling episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.